How many of you have needs? Do you have needs? Yeah, a couple hands go right up. That's all right. Yes, thank you, thank you. Maybe for you, you think about immediately a health need, or you think about financial needs, or stress and anxiety, or maybe just needs going on with friends where there is uh, uh, maybe issues or miscommunication, or maybe it's marriage or work, but we all have needs. Now, so we, we can acknowledge that, but if I were to say to you, how many of you consider yourself to be needy? How many hands go up now? Like, how many consider yourself to be a needy person, right? Like, we can admit we have needs, but that's different than being needy. Nobody wants to be, to be needy, right? Kids, we do love you dearly, but, but you are needy, right? Like, kids are needy. You start out with babies, and they wake up every three hours, and they need to eat, hopefully, every three hours, some more than that, right? Diapers have to be changed. Babies are needy. Toddlers are needy. Teens, you're not off the hook. I have found that teens can be just as needy as toddlers, right? I see some heads nodding, right? And they need money, and they need clothes, and they need rides, and, and they're needy too. Um, but depending upon how you look at it, honestly, regardless of your age or life phase or personality, we're all needy people. When we look in terms of our Father and our Creator in heaven, we are all needy. We need Him for every moment of every day. We need Him to keep gravity in place, to keep providing oxygen for us to breathe, to provide water and food and the sun so that life on planet Earth can exist. We have needs every heartbeat. We need God's love. We need His grace. We need His forgiveness. We need His work in our lives. Each of us need God's healing. We need healing from physical sickness, from emotional pain, from mental stress. We need the fruit of the Spirit. Each moment of each day, without the grace of God, we could not walk in love and joy and peace or patience and kindness and goodness or faithfulness or gentleness or self-control. You put all of that together, and I'm sorry, but everybody in this room is a needy person. This morning, we're going to be in Mark 7 as we continue our series in making disciples, and we're going to meet two people who I think would be appropriately described as needy, and we're going to consider how Jesus is a Savior to the needy. That's our big theme this morning, that Jesus is a Savior to the needy. Now, you not, may not like that label. You may not want to consider yourself a needy person, but that is our reality before God. As we've been studying this summer in Mark's Gospel, not necessarily going verse by verse, but looking at snapshots of how Jesus made disciples, how he relates to his disciples, and how he calls us to make disciples. So this morning, we're going to pick up in Mark 7. We're going to pick up in verse 24. And as you skim over the earlier part of the chapter, you'll notice that Jesus is there interacting, as he often does, with the Jewish religious leaders. And he is expanding their boundaries and pushing the edges of the Israelite faith. Earlier in Mark chapter 7, the Pharisees are complaining because Jesus and his disciples don't keep the practices of ceremonial cleansing as they do. And Jesus counters them by saying, look, you, you make a big deal to honor God on the outside, but your hearts are from, far from him. They have all these religious traditions, but Jesus points out that those religious traditions are more important to them than actually following the commandments of God. And so Jesus goes on to explain there in the opening verses of, of Mark into the chapter that he says, look, my disciples and what I'm calling them to is not external rituals of eating and drinking or washing. He says it's not what's on the outside that makes a person clean or unclean before God. It's the heart of a man or a woman that matters. And Jesus says what defiles a person is not what goes in from the outside, but what comes out from the inside, right? Either your heart is clean or your heart is defiled. 
I'm getting a lot of low end, like rumbling behind me. I don't know if anybody else is hearing it, but um, Mark is laying the groundwork in all of this. He's laying the groundwork for how the Gentile Christians are included in the kingdom of God. See, because what he's doing is saying, look, it's not all about your, your Jewish religious rituals that make you right with God. It's ultimately about your heart. And so Jesus is opening up the idea and the beautiful gospel concept that will go out and say, look, God's grace is for all the world, Jew and Gentile alike. And then in verse 24, he talks to us about how Jesus actually goes into Gentile regions. Jesus goes into a region where there would not have been a lot of Jewish religious people, but people that were still just as needy. And we're going to read two accounts this morning of Jesus healing in those unbelieving regions. And Mark, what he's doing in his gospel is laying the groundwork. And many of his readers in the early centuries that were reading Mark's gospel, just like you and I, were Gentile Christians. And he is showing us how we too are included in the kingdom. So let me pray and we'll pick up and read these two beautiful stories beginning in Mark 7, 24. Lord God, we thank you for your grace and your love. We thank you that you Fill us with your spirit, that you call us into your presence, into your family. And Lord, we do come as needy people. Many of us are well, well aware of that. We woke up this morning overwhelmed by our deep need. Others may be full of pride or a spirit of self-sufficiency, and we need to be reminded of how desperate we are for you. And so, God, we pray as we read your word, young and old alike, as we hear your word this morning, that your spirit would stir us and call us to be humble people looking to you to fulfill each and every need that we have, physical, emotional, and spiritual, temporal here on this earth, and eternal for all time, God. We need you and your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. The Word of God says that from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon, and he entered a house, and he did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child laying in bed and the demon gone. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and he went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears. And after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephphatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. And everybody said, 
Amen. Amen. Jesus traveling outside of the Jewish region to this predominantly Gentile territory. The city of Tyre, interestingly enough, was, was on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. In fact, originally it was a, it was a small island just off the coast of the sea, and, and they had built a land bridge connecting the, the little city island of Tyre to the mainland. And so we read that Jesus go, is going there, whether he was on the actual island or not. It seems pretty clear he wanted a retreat. He's trying to get away for a little island retreat, doesn't want people to know where he is. He's with his disciples for some rest, probably some, some, some core teaching, but instead, word gets out, as we've read, it's hard to keep silent, the crowd's whispering, and people find out where he is, and so he's interrupted, you might say, from his attempt to get away by this woman with a pressing need. We don't know. She's a Gentile. She would not have been uh, raised in the Jewish faith. We don't know what she understood about the Israel Uh, the Messiah to Israel or about Jesus. We don't know what she believed about him, but his reputation is widely known and she's desperate. She's desperate. So she comes to Jesus knowing that that he has healing power, knowing that he can drive out the evil presence. And she has this daughter. Can you imagine raising a daughter? We don't know her age, five, six, ten, and she is tormented by a demonic spirit. Can you imagine having a young child who was never herself who was constantly tormented, out of control, overcome by this evil spirit. How heartbreaking, how devastating this would have been for this mom. And so she comes into the house. She falls down at Jesus' feet. She is begging him, literally begging him, Jesus, will you come back with me to my house? Will you cast out this demon? Will you say the word and the demon will be gone even from here? And in verse 27, we see Jesus' response, and it's not what we would expect, right? He doesn't respond to her the way we've often seen seen Jesus respond, and it catches us us off guard. And Jesus says to her, let the little children be fed first. It's not right to take bread from the children and feed it to the dogs. Now, there's no way around this. Jesus is challenging this woman's right to ask him for help. And in so doing, he's giving her a little parable. This is a little mini parable about the kingdom of God and God's plan for Jews and Gentiles. Now, children, if you're following along in your, in your outline, we're about to get to that first point, so hang on. You see the blanks there. I know you're coloring. In a minute, I'm going to ask you to flip over. If anybody didn't get one, I see a few folks coming in. There's pages on the back still. So this little parable is this. If you have a house full of kids, and you call dinner, and the kids come to the table, you feed the kids first, right? Pretty basic, pretty common practice. Children, come up and speak with me after service, because if you, in your home... If you come to the table for dinner and your parents feed the dogs with everything they've prepared at the table first and then let you eat the leftovers, okay, that's a problem. We need to talk. So Jesus is saying, look, you got to feed the kids first, then you feed the dogs. The term dogs was a common cultural way to, for the Jews to refer to the Gentiles. And it was a reference to the fact that ceremonially, according to the law of the Old Testament, Gentiles were unclean. And that sounds very offensive to you and I, doesn't it? But the woman is completely unfazed by this if you see her response. She, in fact, doesn't even disagree with Jesus' point that she is, according to the kingdom of God, a dog under the table. But she just continues to argue based upon her great need, not based upon the fact that Jesus has said something wrong or offensive. So before we look fully at the woman's reply, I want to pause for a minute and, and look at the overall perspective of what's going on here in, in the culture and in the, in the scriptures. Jesus is affirming what he's taught elsewhere, what he's practiced elsewhere, that for now, 
The people of Israel are the priority of his ministry. The Gentiles are still outside the covenant promise of God. In fact, in Matthew's account of this story, we read that the disciples want Jesus to send the woman away. And Jesus responds by saying, affirming, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. See, generations before, God had made a covenant promise with a man named Abraham and his wife Sarah that he would bless them and bless their descendants as God's chosen people. And those people became the nation of Israel. And through them, God said as he blessed them, as he saved them, God would bless all the nations of the earth. And as you read the Old Testament, there are glimpses here and there of God's work outside of Israel and God blessing Gentiles and and, and God doing things and prophesying and predicting what was going to happen. But it was not until after Jesus' death and resurrection, not until after Jesus sent the Holy Spirit, not until after the establishment of the early church that God gives the apostle Peter a vision. You remember that vision in the book of Acts? And through that vision, God made it clear, okay, now salvation goes out to all people. And so there's this transition in what we call the history of redemption after Jesus' resurrection, where now the gospel goes out to all people. See, Jesus was the Messiah of Israel. In fact, he was the one true Israel come to fulfill God's covenant promise made generations earlier with Abraham. But Jesus would need to come first to be a a savior to the needy of Israel, and then that would extend out as savior to the needy all over the world. And so this woman is coming up to Jesus in the middle, literally in the middle of this transition of history of redemption. And and the transition has not yet been fully realized. Now, Now, the woman probably does not understand all of that theology and all of that history, but here's what she does understand. Okay, Jesus, I understand what you're saying but my daughter is still being tormented and I am still in desperate need. And so she comes to him, not not arguing against his theology, but she's persuading Jesus and she's actually very persuasive based upon her her need for help. And so she's not discouraged, she's not dissuaded and, and, and she has this faith and this persistence that is commendable. And look at verse 28 again at what she says. Again, she, she, even, she understands, even affirms that Jesus is going first to the people of Israel, but then she persuades Jesus, you know what, that shouldn't exclude me. And she says, yes, Lord, but even the dogs under the table still receive provision from the master of the house. Even the dogs still eat the crumbs that fall and that drop from the kids of the house. Now he's given us again a little, a little parable about how dogs are fed and how children are fed. And before I continue, let me just clear up a little rumor, by the way. And I, I know my daughter, Sybil, will appreciate this because she has her, finds herself defending me amongst her friends. There's a rumor out there that I do not like dogs. Not true. Not true at all. Okay? I love dogs. Dogs are a beautiful part of God's creation. They're amazing creatures. They're smart. They can be trained. They can fulfill all sorts of useful jobs in society, right? I, I do like dogs. If I'm over here, I like dogs when they're over there right? I like dogs very much. If I'm over here, I like dogs when they're over there, right? I just don't want them all up on me. I don't want them in my house sitting on my couch, okay? So just clarify that. My wife and I did not grow up in families with dogs, and and we have resisted our kids' continuous plea for a dog, right? And every time one of you guys tells me something about your dog, like how you had to clean up dog vomit on your dining room couch, 
Or how you had to get up early in the morning and clean up dog doo-doo in your backyard. Or how you had to leave the party early to go let your dog out of the house. Or how you had to spend two, $3,000 on a dog vet bill. Or how your neighbor's upset with you because your dog was barking at their, at their child and scared them. Right? I add that to the list. I have a long list of all the reasons why not to get a dog. Okay? There is at least one, maybe only one, good reason to have a dog, and that's what Jesus affirms, right, in the passage. The canine vacuum effect, right? Dogs do provide a useful service in cleaning up all the crumbs and all the food that drops in the kitchen that spills off the dining room table, right? So for that, God bless you for for your dogs, right? So we affirm what Jesus is saying here, right? That even though, and I hope this is the case, kids, even though you should be fed first in your home, whatever falls off the table, whatever the leftovers are, those dogs are going to lick up and eat up and enjoy, right, as they should. This woman's words in verse 28, again, is a tremendous statement of faith. Hear the heart of what she is saying. She knows how abundant God's provision is. This woman knows that despite the, the theological teaching, despite Jew and Gentile and Israel and the church, and despite what God has not yet fully done through the sending of the Spirit and the gospel going out to all nations, this woman argues with Jesus, and she persuades Jesus by saying, look, but God's grace is abundant. You can feed the children first, who's the nation of Israel, and still have plenty for me. Because she is convinced that she can be served without interrupting Jesus' purpose because she knows the grace, the love, the provision, the healing power of God is enough. And Jesus is amazed. He's astounded. He affirms her faith. Look at verse 29. He says, well, because of this reply, you may now go with your prayer answered. The demon has been cast out of your daughter. In fact, in Matthew's gospel, Jesus makes his, his commendation even more explicit. He says, he says, woman, your faith is so great, I will do for you your desire." Because she was not put off. She was not put off. And so the woman goes back home and she finds her daughter free from the evil spirit, calmly lying in bed. And we see here what I want you guys to, to write in there on your outline, that Jesus welcomes the needy. Jesus welcomes the needy to eat at his table. That our Savior now welcomes all people to come and eat at the Lord's table. Now it's true, in Jesus' ministry, his ministry was limited in a number of ways. Think about it. It was limited in time. At, at most, he probably only healed and preached and, and cast out demons for a few years. It was limited in geography. He only traveled a relatively small region of the world. It was limited in perspective. As we've said, he mainly focused on the people of Israel. But now, praise God, Jesus has sent his gospel, has sent his spirit, has sent his people into every nation of the earth, into Jew and Gentile alike. In fact, in Romans 1.16, it says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. I think we have this verse. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone. Not the wise, not the ritualistically pure, not just those of, of Israelite birth, but to the Jew first and also to the Greek. See, listen, hear this. We no longer need to simply eat or to wait for crumbs to fall from the table. Each of us, through faith in Christ, are sons of God, daughters of God. We now sit at the table with the King, with the children of God, because we are a child of God, feasting on His abundance. 
Galatians 3 says this, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. And, and, and that beautiful verse actually affirms the little parable that Jesus taught. It's the children who sit at the table that get to eat first. And guess what? Through faith in Christ, each of us are now children of God, children of Abraham, heirs according to the promise. And so come sit at the table. Some of you are, are, are backed off in the corner waiting for a scrap, waiting for a leftover. Some of you are, are sitting on the floor looking up at the table, wishing that you felt worthy to come sit. Come sit this morning. Come sit at the table. I talked with a man who's been coming to church recently who said he, he doesn't feel worthy to be here. He's new to the church. He's learning. He's understanding. And he says, you know what? I don't feel like I'm up to everybody else's standard. I feel like everybody else is up here. And people seem to have a knowledge and an understanding. And they know the words to the songs. And they know how to find the verse when the pastor says, turn there in the Bible. And they flip open. He's like, I have no idea. And he said, I feel like if people really knew who I was, they, they would ask me to leave. That's how, that's how he feels. And I reiterated to this man, there is plenty of room at the table. And if they're going to ask you to leave, they probably need to ask me to leave too. Because I am just as needy as you are. There's plenty of room at the table. There's plenty to eat at the table. As we saw last week when Jesus fed the 5,000, he fed the 5,000. And then he had, he had baskets full of leftovers, right? The Gospels, again and again, account Jesus describing the kingdom of God as a great banquet feast. Luke tells one account of Jesus sitting at a big dinner party and he's teaching about the kingdom of God as a, as a banquet feast and one man calls out, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. See, listen, as Jesus is teaching parables about the, the banquet feast, he says it's not just people who have places of honor. It's not just those that are important in society. It's not just those this morning that are, are good looking. There's one or two of you. It's not just those that have a big bank account, right? It's not just those that, that, that feel worthy or that socially have a place. Jesus tells parables about how his gospel and his kingdom goes out to the needy, to the hurting, to those who feel overlooked, to those who are on the fringes of society. And he says in Luke 13, 29, talking about this eternal banquet feast, he says people will come from the east and from the west and from the north and from the south, and all will come and recline and sit and eat at the table in the kingdom of God. And that feast begins now as the gospel goes out. As you respond in faith, as you come to God as a needy person, you now sit at the table feasting on God's love, on God's grace, on God's forgiveness, on the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life, on being part of the family of faith. And so identify before him this morning, where, what are your areas of need? Is it emotional pain? Is it battles with sin? Because Jesus welcomes you, the needy, to eat at his table. Identify with him this morning. Don't, don't keep this theoretical. Where are you hurting? Where are you desperate? What are those areas of need that you haven't admitted to yourself? What are those areas of need that your spouse keeps kind of hinting at, but you have yet to admit? What are those areas of need that the other guys in your accountability group keep talking about, but you haven't said, yeah, I struggle with that too? What are the areas of pain and need and hurt in your own heart, in your own lives, in your own relationships that have been going on for so long, you've kind of forgotten that they're needs, or you've tried to push them to the side and say, no, no, I'll just put up with it. It's no longer a need. It's just something I got to put up with. I just got to walk with the limp for the rest of my life. But Jesus says, no, come to me this morning, sit at the table, receive from a fully nourished meal 
that can meet any and all needs that you have, both now and at the return of Christ in eternity. So let's come feast this morning. In fact, in a few moments, we're going to come up to this physical table and feast on these physical elements to remind ourselves that we now have the right and the privilege and the joy to come eat at God's table. And we're going to feast this morning on these representations of his body and his blood and remind ourselves that through the death of Christ, we now come into the kingdom. That through the resurrection of Christ, we have the hope of eternity that begins now. Amen? So let's be needy people because Jesus welcomes us to feast at his table. Let's look at this second story that we read. And you can put up that next uh, blank outline point. Kids, we'll let the anticipation build and, and you can prime yourselves to fill in that next blank. In verse 31, Mark tells us that Jesus traveled from that region. He made a few stops and he ends up back at the region of the Decapolis. Now, some of you remember this from a few weeks ago. This was the same region where Jesus healed the demoniac, the man with the demon, and then sent those demons into the pigs. You remember that? And you remember that the Decapolis was a multicultural region, Jew and Gentile, people from different ethnicities and cultures, all kind of living together in this district. And there would have been faithful Jews there, but, but many more people of other ethnicities and religions. And Jesus also encounters a man there who is also needy. But there's a lot of differences, actually, between this man in the second story and the woman in the first story. See, while the woman's need was because of demonic oppression, this man is dealing with a chronic health condition. While the woman came with great faith, there's, there's no indication of the faith of this man. In fact, it was his friends that brought him to Jesus. While this woman barged in on Jesus because she's dealing with an urgent, probably life-threatening condition on her daughter, that this man doesn't have anything life-threatening. He's just dealing with an ongoing, chronic need of, of not being able to hear. But Jesus meets both needs, despite their differences, in a unique way that's meaningful to each of them. Look at verse 32. The people bring their friend to Jesus. He's deaf. And because he's deaf, he has a speech impediment. And they ask Jesus to heal him. In fact, similar to the woman, they are also begging, begging Jesus to heal their friend. Can you imagine what it was like living in an ancient culture like that with no sense of, of hearing, with your sense of, of speaking debilitated, unable to communicate? I, I met a man recently who was telling me about his daughter who was born deaf. And, and some of you may, may know the details of this. I'm just going to give you a layman's explanation. But she, she was able to have surgical implants behind her ear, not in her ear, but behind her ear. And, and, and they implanted this electronic device in her head. And then there's this like little hard drive, basically, that magnetically sticks to the side of her head. Some of you know what I'm talking about, right? And, and she can now hear. He was telling me that, that, that what they implanted in her head was probably going to be good for the rest of her life. They can literally do software updates on the little part that, that it magnetically attaches to the outside of her head. And he says it's sunk with his, with his, with his phone, and so he can, he can adjust frequency, he can turn the volume up, or just all from an app on his phone. And he said the most wonderful part is not only seeing the look on his daughter's face, now she can hear, Right? her being able to communicate, to learn to talk, to be able to sit in school. He said, that's not the most wonderful part. He said, the most wonderful part is that when we're in the car on a long road trip and my daughter wants to listen to the Frozen soundtrack for the 1,000th time, he said, I can pull it up on my phone. I can literally send it into her head and that she can hear it without anybody else in the car. Having, he said, it's amazing. This man doesn't have any of that, right? He has no iPad to, to type out you know, what he wants to say. 
He may have had some rudimentary sign language, but, but nothing developed to enable him to communicate in, in full sentences. He was likely ostracized. He was likely poor. And so Jesus, in verse 33, he pulls this man aside. Likely that the, the friends who brought him come with him because they react later. And he pulls them aside for some privacy. And I just love this. He, he wants to do something with this man in, in private. Now, we, we've seen Jesus heal in front of large crowds, right? And sometimes he does that because those miracles serve to validate his message, serve to validate his identity as son of God, to prove that he is who he says. But that's not the point of this miracle. In other cases, you remember when Jesus rose the little girl from the dead and it was, it was just uh, Peter, James, and John and her parents, the only person that heard about it. Nobody even knew what happened until after Jesus had gone back up into heaven. It was private. Sometimes God wants to do something with people that is intimate. That wants, He wants to manifest God's mercy simply for that individual. See, what's, what's about to happen is that he's not just going to heal the man. He could have done that publicly, but what he's going to do is, is meet this man, know this man, connect with this man, and, and speak and, and move into his most intimate, desperate needs. And in verses 33 and 34, we see Jesus does some bizarre things to touch and heal this man, right? Sometimes, often, Jesus brings healing through his words, right? Sometimes he doesn't even see the person that's sick. He just speaks and healing happens on the other side of town. Sometimes he uses physical touch. Sometimes Jesus heals a man or a woman directly. Sometimes he sends his disciples out to heal on his behalf. Sometimes it's public. Sometimes it's private. Often when Jesus is healing somebody, if you read through the gospels, he has a conversation with them, right? He asks them questions about their need, about their hurt, about how long it's been going on. He listens to them. He listens to their stories. Guess what? He can't do any of that with this man. He, he can't talk to this man. He can't have a conversation. He can't ask him about how long he's been deaf or how hard it's been. He can't communicate with him in that way. And so Jesus takes time, listen, to pull him aside from the crowd and to connect with him privately in a, in a way that the man can understand. He touches this man's sense of sight and sense of touch because that's how this guy's living. He's living with his eyes. He's living with his hands. And so Jesus doesn't just touch his ears, but he, he puts his fingers into his ears. I know it's weird. He doesn't just touch the man's tongue. He spits on his fingers and then touches his tongue. Now, now, culturally in the ancient world, they wouldn't have had the same hang-ups that you and I do about, well, what about the germs, right? It just would have accentuated the, the, the sensory experience that this guy was having, right? Remember when Jesus healed a blind man and he spit into the mud and he, he stirred up mud and he put that in his eyes, right? Jesus is always using physical ways to communicate, to interact, to touch that person's senses in a unique way. Jesus then turns his head up visibly so the man can see that he's praying. He lets out a sigh that the man can't hear, but he can see Jesus' chest rise and fall again. And then he cries out this word in Aramaic, be opened. And with that, with what to you and I is a little bit gross, but to this man, I assure you, was the most powerful, comforting thing he'd ever experienced, the most personal connection, a touch from God that was up close, and his ears are open, and he can hear again, and he can speak clearly. And in that moment, God's mercy and God's grace came to this needy person, and his tongue was loosed. Of course, as we've read, he charged the man 
not to tell anyone what happened, tells his friends, but, but the scripture says that the more Jesus told them not to spread the word, the more zealously they couldn't stop themselves from talking about the work of God. And so we see here this morning that Jesus restores the needy with an individual touch. That's, that's what I get out of this story. Jesus restores the needy with an individual touch. Kids, you can go ahead and write that down. I hope that that, that speaks to you. To be restored means to take something broken and to heal it to fully as it was intended. Listen, Jesus comes to God's people, but he comes to us as individuals. Jesus calls us collectively, but he calls us each by name. He meets with us privately. He touches us in a way that you can hear, that you can feel, that you can see to restore you into right relationship with God, to restore your body, your soul, your heart. One day in the resurrection, at the return of Christ, when all things are made new, we will be fully restored. Those of you that have limps, that can't hear, that like me are, are starting to look at those prescription readers at the, at the drugstore, that maybe my arms aren't quite long enough, right? We will be fully restored, fully healed. And some of that healing happens now, praise God. Some of it we wait for eternity. And here's what I would say based upon these two stories that we just read. Don't think, don't expect that God is going to work the same way in everyone's life. Again, I think about another man I was talking to recently who was experiencing the presence and power of God. He said, I can't explain it. I don't understand it. But God is at work in my life. I'm experiencing peace. This is a new phenomenon for me. And it's undeniable. He says, it's undeniable that God is doing something. He says, but I'm struggling because I don't understand. I'm struggling because I still have so many intellectual questions. I don't understand the biblical truth that I'm hearing. I'm not yet convinced that Jesus is Savior, but I know that something is happening in my life. And he's in desperate need of an individual touch from God to bring clarity, to bring faith, to bring belief to what he is experiencing and, and can't deny. And I told this man about a, somebody else I remember talking with years ago, and I said, he's in almost the exact opposite position you are in. And I told him about another man who understood the Bible, understood the gospel, said that Christianity made sense, believed that it made sense, but he just said, I don't feel anything. And, and, I, and I get it here, and I get it here, but I don't get it here. Uh-oh. And this man had intellectual understanding. He had, he had knowledge and understanding, but he, he didn't have faith because he hadn't experienced the touch of God. The other man didn't have any real, real belief or understanding, but he had experienced a touch from God. Do you see that? What do they both need? They both need a personal, intimate connection, touch from God, but in two very, very different ways. And God works in each of our lives in personal, intimate, individual ways. He speaks to our senses that are most in tune, right? Some of us are more intellectual, some are more emotional, some use the sense of, of sight and sound, others hearing and taste. Do you see what I'm saying? Like we all connect and interact and relate and see the world around us and see God in different ways. We all have sin, we all have brokenness, we all have weakness, but within that we have different pro approaches, different perspectives, and so God touches us in a way that we can see and hear that is meaningful to us. And he's, he's not going to work the same way in everyone. And so as you pray for your kids, as you pray for your, your friends and family members, as you pray for yourselves, don't say, God, do, do what you did in that person's life, because that, that's certainly not what the other person needs. It may not be what you need. 
as you go through a difficult time and maybe you've experienced loss or grief or tragedy or sadness and you see what God is doing in your spouse and you think, well, it must have to be the same. No, 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 no. It's not going to be the same way for you as God moves you through faith, as he moves you through the trials and hardships of this life. He's going to touch you individually. He's going to restore you personally. And it's going to be different. And I believe that by God's grace, through faith in Christ, you will be restored back into wholeness. And it will be a way that you can feel, in a way that you can see, in a way that you can hear that's unique to you. And so God, I mean, so say, say to God, God, t- touch me in a way that my senses will understand. Because God will come and restore through the work of Christ and he will take hard hearts and soften them. And deaf ears will be opened and blind eyes will be healed and sin will be forgiven and debts will be paid and broken lives will be restored as he restores the needy. And that's each of you and I with an individual touch from the Holy Spirit, the very Spirit of Jesus. And he's going to work in a variety of different ways. Now, I know some of you are hoping that it doesn't involve spit, right? Unlikely that it will involve spit, but it it, it will most certainly involve the Word of God. As the Word of God speaks and touches you through the conviction and the truth of his Word. That's how God works in our lives. He works in our lives through loving community of the body of Christ. And I know some of you were brought to faith, some people in this room were brought to faith, not because you were convinced by an intellectual argument, not because of a sermon, not because of, of reading more than a carpenter, not because of studying the Word of God, but you were brought to faith because you, you experienced Christian community. And, and you, you saw, you felt, you experienced Jesus at, at work in us, in the body of Christ. God works through the inner testimony of the Spirit in our hearts. That may or may not have been the inner testimony of the Holy Spirit. I don't know. As God whispers and speaks to you in a way that you say, I can't even put it into words. I just know that I know that Christ is at work in my life. For some of you, God works through the visible manifestation of God's power in healing and miracles. I heard testimony recently from a man who who was convinced of the work of God in his life because in the midst of a moment of anger and frustration he prayed and God God changed the physical circumstances of the world around him and he said it it was it was a miracle and 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 I knew that God was at work for some of you it's the tangible freedom that you've experienced from sin and shame and you've tried hard and you've gone to the counselors and you've worked and you've tried discipline and strategy and you haven't been able to come whatever whatever sin it is that has tripped you up whether it's lust or greed or anger or addiction and and you came to Christ and you fell down on your knees like the man and the woman in the story did and you begged God and he released you from that sin and you said Christ is real he's truly risen because now I am free. And so God is going to work through the Word and through the body of Christ and through the testimony of the Spirit and through the manifestation of of God's power and through the freedom that He brings into our lives. And He will touch each of us individually and communicate with us that He is Savior to the needy. Amen? And so we're going to worship again this morning as as the team comes back up. And I'm going to invite Pastor Matt to come as he prepares to lead us in our celebration of the Lord's Supper and be reminded this morning that no matter where you are, that Jesus welcomes you. Jesus welcomes you as a needy person to feast at his table. And he will restore you with an individual touch 
That's why he came to earth as son of God. That's why he lived the perfect life. That's why he died on the cross as a substitute for our sins. That's why he rose from the dead. And that's why he will one day return again. Because we need a savior. Because we are needy people.